and welcome to Out with Jimmy, the only podcast where members of the LGBTQ community share their coming out stories with you. Um, thank you so much for listening. Make sure if you haven't, go to Apple Podcasts, click subscribe, and you can follow us on social media, Out with Jimmy on uh, Twitter and Out with Jimmy Alexander on Facebook and Instagram. This week, Brett Parsons is Out with Jimmy. Hey, Jimmy, how are you today? It's great to be with you. It's great to be with you. So let's uh, talk to uh, talk about you for a second. You are from where? I am a native Washingtonian, born and raised right here in the nation's capital. And what do you do for a living? So I recently retired after nearly 27 years with the Metropolitan Police Department in Washington, D.C., and 36 years total in law enforcement. But I continue to serve in law enforcement as a reserve officer and also doing consulting, teaching, and speaking on law enforcement issues and diversity issues around the world. And you should mention that um, you had a special uh, unit that you worked with. Tell us about that. Well, I'm, I'm honored to have been a part of the, the creation, development, and running of a unit that eventually became the Special Liaison Branch, but started back in uh, 1999 as the Gay and Lesbian Liaison Unit, which um, to date, still remains one of the only liaison units in the world that is full-time dedicated to the service to the LGBTQ plus community by law enforcement officers. There are certainly agencies that have liaison officers and have liaison units, but this unit was created and is a full-time unit of more than one officer working full-time in that community. Well, I always say, and well, I've told this story once, I'll tell it again here, um, when I first moved to D.C. many, many, many years ago, um, I might have been at Crew Club one uh, late night. And um, I had never been. I was a very young man at the time. Someone told me about it. And I met friends over there. And I'm looking around like, oh, my God, what is this? This is this is um, uh, this was like now when I watch Queer as Folk, I'm like, I had a friend say, oh, there's no places like that. And I'm like, no, there's no places like that at all. But I don't know if it was you, but some um, uniformed officers came in there. And I'm like, oh, oh my God, the place is getting busted. We're all going to be thrown in jail. But um, they were like, just making sure everybody's okay. Well, of course, my first reaction is, Jimmy, is what is this thing, crew club, you speak of? I, I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> but um, that was likely, that was likely me. Um, it was uh, and continues to be a stop for liaison officers for the Metropolitan Police Department. And the way it works is, you know, we, we have a, a responsibility to be in the community where the community feels safe and where we are welcome. And, you know, that certainly was a place where community members gathered. We made an announcement always, I don't know if you remember, but I, I usually would go over the PA and make an announcement. Hey, everybody, you know, this is Brett Parson from the DC Police Liaison Unit. Don't panic, nobody's in trouble. If you see me, if you see me and you want to ask a question or just say hello, you know, please do. If not, you know, I'm okay with that also. I remember going, okay, I'm in a towel. How do I, uh, is there a fire exit here? What the hell is going on? Um, but no. Well, it, ha it, ha it actually had a couple of different impacts. Uh, on, on the one hand, there were several men who, for one reason or another, decided to, you know, either hide in their rooms or, you know, not be seen by me. Uh, there were others that were rather happy to see me. <laughs> what I mean, <laughs> Senator, please go in the other room. Um, well, it's uh, so. Let's go to how and how many years ago did that start? 
So it was started by two lesbian officers on our police department actually in 1999. Um, and I was brought in in very late 99, early 2000 as its first supervisor and to give it uh, more structure and a mission. And how did you and the ladies get that done? 1999, to you and me, doesn't feel that long ago, but when you start thinking how the world has changed since 1999, it has. How did you get that done? Well, I, I, I need to give credit to Kelly McMurray and Burdette Williams, um, who were the two lesbian officers who um, really were the impetus behind starting this. Um, again, I only came in a year after they started. I was, I was part of consultation and supported them, of course, but wasn't part of the, the actual initiation of the unit. But, you know, the biggest thing, Jimmy, was that they believed very strongly that as openly les open lesbians, open members of the LGBTQ plus community, that they could provide outreach and education and actually response to incidents and crimes in the community more effectively than some of their straight peers. And that was the initial concept and what they looked at initially and and what really convinced our law enforcement leaders and our political leaders here in dc that they might be onto something is they looked at hate crime statistics um, for 1998 which was the year prior to that and what they saw was was something that stood out that even somebody like me who flunked my graduate level statistics three times <laughs> um, <laughs> yes uh, that that Maryland and Virginia that year of 1998 reported to the FBI that they had hate crimes occurring in the hundreds that had been reported to them. But the um, District of Columbia reported to the FBI two. Mm. And, and that disparity just stood out that there was clearly an issue with reporting of just bias-related crimes across the board, not just LGBT-related, but across the board. And so that in and of itself was enough to convince our political leaders and our law enforcement leaders that we needed to do a better job of gaining the trust and being more connected to those communities that are suffering bias-related crimes. And so that was really the impetus behind it. And then the next step was really breaking down some of those, those paradigms, changing, shifting those paradigms of where policing occurs. It, it, it has been for many, many years that we expect community members to, to us, call 911, visit the police station, or stop a police officer on the street to ask for help. And this really turned that upside down and said, no, we need to be where the community feels safe. We need to be in places sometimes where police officers aren't seen. And that is really when the snowball started to roll and started to grow. I ask this normally on an episode. Um, when was the first time you said out loud that you were gay? So that would have been my sophomore year of college at the University of Maryland. Um, and I'm happy to share that year with you. I would just have to do some calculations at this point. And as you know, I flunked my graduate level statistics three, three times. Three times, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> I'll be using that line. But I was lucky to get through. By, by the way, it was it was in the eighties. I'll give oh, I'll give you that. Okay, okay. So that was probably a big step. And it, well, like any of us, any of us, it's a big step. But the eighties, there weren't that many uh, out people. 
Yeah, certainly not. Certainly not in the environments that I was uh, in at that time. Uh, I was beginning my law enforcement career, and I also was in professional athletics. I was a professional ice hockey referee. Uh, neither of which uh, were very welcoming <laughs> of gay people. Okay, I'll ask you it this way, Brett. So you became a cop officially in what year? So I became an actual police officer in January of 1994. Prior to that, I was in law enforcement as a police explorer, as a student, and as a volunteer with law enforcement agencies. Okay, well, how long were you involved with, with uh, any type of law enforcement before you met the first man and woman who were um, openly out? Well, that I knew about, yeah. Because looking looking back, yeah. looking back, I actually had met several openly well, gay and lesbian police officers. I yeah. worded it out. Who were out? Yeah. Uh, well, but they were out, but I didn't know it. Oh, okay. Out to, okay. I, yeah. So, so I didn't learn that till later. So, I, I I understand the premise of your question, and it wasn't until I started my liaison work, um, in late 1999, early 2000 that I started to become part of a network of openly LGBTQ plus officers and allies. Was it tough to um, be so out and open about it within the force? Jimmy, I'm, I'm six foot. I weigh about 295 pounds. I have a, uh, uh, an experience in professional athletics and ice hockey. Um, there aren't a lot of people lining up to fuck with me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and and part of part of my experience and, and and that which I have to admit is my experience coming out and my experience as an openly gay man has not been the same of many, many LGBTQ plus people. I have been very fortunate in just who I am, what I am, my personality, uh, perhaps even my uh, my aggressiveness in, in just being myself. Um that that I've enjoyed a tremendous amount of support. That's not to say that I haven't experienced homophobia and some blatant homophobic acts in my in my life, but overall, I, I really can't complain about my experience coming out. Um, well, let's delve uh, deeper in that because you know I was outed in my thirties, and I have to say that I've been God has blessed me. I have been very lucky in my experience. I've not really faced anything. Um, too negative, uh, not, not anywhere near what I was so fearful of all those years. Although I will say that I may not be six six uh, three. I you are have, far. Six, you are far from six three, Jimmy. Yeah, we yeah, stood I, next to each other. Yes. I'm lucky. I'm five. I'm lucky. I'm five three. <laughs> I have a big personality. I I am been. I'm been very lucky that I've not uh, faced a lot, and in, sometimes it makes me feel some sort of guilt when I see other people in our community who have gone through hell and back, and I'm not talking about folks older than us. I'm talking about young, um, yeah. young people right now who may be listening or in their house with their parents telling them that they're going to go to hell. Uh, it's, it's heartbreaking. We're in such a better place than we were five, 10, 15, hell, uh, 20 years. But when you came out in the eighties, how did that happen? So, as everyone, uh, it, their experiences are probably very similar. It, it wasn't a um, an unlocking of the door and and a 
you know, a massive coming out at once. It was, it was a process. Um, first, of course, it occurred for myself. Um, the first person I said it to um, was actually a University of Maryland football player who had spoken on uh, a panel with the uh, Gay and Lesbian Student Association. He came and spoke on the panel as a collegiate athlete who was gay. He, he identified as bi. Um, and a day after he spoke is when I finally connected the word gay to myself. And I had dinner with him. And I, I, he was the first person I ever said, I, I'm pretty sure I'm gay. Right. I um, want to say that that's pretty damn smooth. You had dinner with the guy the next night, a football player. I'm just thinking, it sounds like a uh, men.com scene, but that's a different story for here and there. Let's go back it, to your it went, dinner. It went absolutely nowhere. Still oh, get I'm your sorry. mind out of the gutter. <laughs> Damn it. Damn it. So, um, how did that feel to say that out loud? I was terrified. Yeah. We, sat, we sat in the corner of, of the residence hall, in fact, in, in the student-athlete area, um, which was more private. Um, I made sure that no one else was at a table near us that could hear us. And I, I can't remember it, but I'm sure I kept doing this, looking over my shoulder to make sure no one could hear me. And I, do rem I, I remember crying during our conversation about asking him questions about his life and, and coming to terms with it and realizing, oh, shit, that's me. Because the whole time he was speaking on the panel, I kept checking the boxes. Yep, that's me. Oh, I have that feeling. Yep, that's me. Oh, fuck, I think I am. <laughs> uh, so you tell him, and when do you start telling friends and family? So it, it, was, it was some time. Um, I was out to myself for some time, mainly because I was in professional athletics. And I had a deep, deep, deep fear that I would be outed publicly as a professional sports official. Um, there, there was a guy by the name, he's still alive. I shouldn't speak to him as if he's dead. Um, Dave Pallone. Um, if you haven't heard of Dave, uh, Dave was a major league umpire in professional baseball and Dave was outed. Um, and he was all over. It was the beginning of ESPN at that time and cable TV was just starting and he was outed in that atmosphere and, uh, his life was destroyed. He, 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 his family left him, his oh. friends left him, he lost his job. Um, and I started to correspond with Dave Pallone um, about it. And he told me in no uncertain terms, don't you dare come out. Um, your career will end. Um, and so I, I stayed in the closet for some time. And it wasn't until I was ready to leave that, that career of professional sports and go into the safe environment of law enforcement full-time huh. uh, that <laughs> I'm an idiot. I, I have no yeah. idea why the hell I chose that transition, but, uh, yeah. but, but I knew it was time to just live openly. And, and it was, it was driven primarily by a relationship. My, my first long-term relationship, my partner and I were not out to our families, but we knew that we were going to be together and we wanted our families to be part of that. And so we decided on that Thanksgiving, which was my first year of graduate school, so that would have been in the early, early 90s, um, that we both went home for Thanksgiving, and we came out to our families. And how'd that go with your family? Oh, mine was amazing. Uh, I, I'm Jewish, um, and uh, we went for the traditional Jewish uh, Thanksgiving meal of Chinese food, 
And um, I knew it was for Christmas, but I didn't know. It was yeah, we also too. we also did it for 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 Thanksgiving at times. Um, and my sister was home from college, and it was just the four of us, and we were about to go to our favorite Chinese restaurant. And I said, "Hey guys, sit down. I, I need to talk to you about something." And my mom and dad were like, "Yeah, we can talk about it at the Chinese restaurant. Let's go." I'm like, "No, this is really important. I need to talk to you." And they could tell I was serious, and so they sat down. And I had prepared this whole speech about I am who you think I am, and I I am still this person, and you know, and of course my mother starts crying. She thinks I'm dying. My sister, of course, is you know petrified with going. And I finally said, you know, I, I have someone in my life that I care about, and that I think I love, and I want you to know that. And they're like, okay, is there a reason why we can't go eat now? <laughs> Let's go. And I said, his name is Mike. And my father looked at me and said. Uh, can we go get Chinese food now? We can talk about this over dinner. Um, I'm, and, sure, I'm sure Mike's a mensch, but I'm hungry. <laughs> so uh, the entire meal was us eating Chinese food, my parents and I talking, and my father and mother calling friends and neighbors over to the table. Hey, happy Thanksgiving. Hey, Brett's gay. Happy Thanksgiving. Brett's gay. Want an egg roll? I mean, it just, <laughs> it, it went that well. Um, I won't say that it was not without anxiety and concerns. Um, my sister actually broke down and was very, very concerned initially, um, mainly because she had met the man who would eventually become her husband. And she knew he idolized me oh. as a officer. Yeah. As a, and, and she didn't want that to change. And she was mm -hmm. really afraid of that. It turned out he was amazing. Uh, my father was very concerned about my grandmother's and how they would react turned out to be a non-issue. His mother, my grandmother on my, my father's side, uh, called me one day from Tucson where she lived and uh, said, is there something you want to tell me? I said, not that I know of. She said, don't you lie to me. Yeah. She got it out of me and she said, why on earth didn't you tell me? And I said, because dad said, you didn't need to know. And she said, he's a schmuck. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and then my other grandmother, uh, who was a little bit more Jewish-centric or, or religious, I shouldn't say religious, she, she just had a stronger Jewish identity. Yeah. She called me from Boca Raton, shut up about that stereotype, um, and yes, my parents are living there now. Um, she called and said uh, the same thing, is there something you want to tell me? No, 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 don't lie to me. I told her, and she said, I only have one question. Is he Jewish? And I said, no, mom, uh, grandma, no, I'm sorry. He's, he's not. He's actually of, of German ancestry. Oh. And she, said, she said, you couldn't find a nice Jewish boy? <laughs> <laughs> Just, you, couldn't you say he was like at least Austrian? Did you go? <laughs> FBG. So, so, that was, so that was my experience. You know, I, it, it was, you know, I won't say it was a fairy tale, but damn, it was pretty, pretty fucking close. What, you know, I know for the rest of your life, that you'll think about how lucky you were, because that sounds like it would be a, on a Netflix uh, season, a new show on Netflix, you know. Um, and in comparison to a lot of stories that we hear here, and I'm sure that families that you deal with, I, you know, I talked to um, um, Sheila Alexander-Reed, who, you know, works for the mayor, um, and, and their liaison, and she talks about how many kids show up on the streets of D.C., leaving their homes 
uh, and sometimes no places to go because their families have kicked them out of their house. And to mm-hmm. me, is there anything worse than that? The streets are, are no place for children. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, Sheila's, Sheila's a very good friend, ally, and mentor to me. And, you know, the work we, we did, did together, um, we, oh, I hope I haven't lost you here. Hold on. Um, we ran in many of the same circles and certainly had very similar missions. And so, you know, I have also come across many stories like that and had to help young people and, and adults, grown adults, deal with that kind of rejection from their families. Um, let's talk about your last six months of your life. Uh, we had talked about you being on, but you told me, I'm sorry, Jimmy, I'm retiring and I'm traveling around the world. Uh, and you left when? When did you start to travel? So this is where we uh, we also perpetuate the stereotype of, of wandering Jews. Um, I uh, instead of the desert, I chose to wander around uh, Europe and the North Atlantic. Um, I have I have had a tradition uh, throughout most of my life that when there are major events that occur in my life and I want to take a break, uh, that I escape to Europe to visit my two very best friends in the world. One is Norwegian and lives outside of Oslo, Norway in a beautiful village called Drobak. And my other best friend is Icelandic and grew up in a small fishing village in the northern coast of Iceland called Husavik. And so um, when I graduated- I have to say, I've been to Iceland and people, that is a unsung, um, they're keeping it quiet because it's so damn beautiful. They don't want everybody coming there. It is magical. It is, it is amazing. It is amazing. We could do an entire show on that together uh, someday, especially with their LGBT rights and, and the openness in that country. So, so I did it when I graduated high school. I did it when I graduated uh, graduate school. And I thought when I retire, I want to do the same thing. Um, and so I bookended a trip with spending about a month with my friend in Norway. At the end of the trip, spending time with my friend in Iceland and then in between uh, eight other countries. I was in England. Ireland, Northern Ireland, Scotland, Germany, Italy, Hungary, and Spain, in addition to Iceland and Norway. And I was like a cartoon character um, that is running down the mountain with the snowball right behind them trying to stay out. That's what COVID was. Well, I then, literally... Yes. Well, tell I, them when you left. Tell them when you left the country so, so uh, for with regard to Italy, I was in Milan, of course, the the heart of the pandemic in Italy. Um, and as I took off, um, the world learned that Italy was shutting Italy down. Um, the same thing happened in Barcelona when I left Barcelona. I literally the day after I left, they shut down uh, all the cities in in Spain. And so, uh, I may be responsible for shutting down most of the economy <laughs> in the world. I'm not quite sure. Brett Parsons on the Global Pandemic World War. Yes, I, I, I am. Uh, I, I think I'm probably responsible not for infections, but uh, for quite a bit of uh, trauma around the world. I uh, was with my husband and we were eating at Annie's down in on 17th Street. And there was an officer sitting beside me at a table who I didn't know, um, talking to somebody who works there and with the waiter. And they're like, oh, poor Brett. And I and both my husband and I went, Brett. And we both looked over and we were like, we see him on Facebook. We feel so bad. This poor man is, you know, without a country, traveling the, the world. And there's a global pandemic. No matter where you go, there it is. Yeah. Well, like? let me tell you. 
let me tell you, I, I don't need your sympathy um, because I think um, as I look around at what other people around the world have had to endure during this mm. pandemic, I've been pretty fucking lucky. Um, I, I was traveling freely. Um, to my knowledge, I've, I've not been infected. I may have been asymptomatic and we may find out that I did have it at some point, but I don't think I did. And I have been surrounded by people and in places that have been incredibly welcoming and, and safe. Um, and especially my last two and a half months that I had to spend, didn't have to spend, that I chose to spend in Iceland um, was amazing. Uh, if you want, I can share with you why I ended up staying in Iceland longer than I expected and what I did there, because I think that's, that's definitely part of this adventure. Did you get the Blue Lagoon? That's the, or the, uh, the hot uh, I've been, I've been there. I've been to Iceland 15 times in my life. So the Blue Lagoon's a tourist place. I, I'm, I'm, I'm more of almost a, a temporary Icelander at this yes. point. So that, that type of trip wasn't necessary. But uh, the intent of my trip to Iceland, other than to see my best friend and his family, uh, he owns a whale watching company um, up in Husavik. Going to give him a plug, Gentle Giants uh, in Husavik. Go to Iceland and take advantage of it if you can. So we had been talking for years about me coming and helping him with the whale watching company. And so the season opens up around March for whale watching. And the idea was I would come in and I would help him with marketing and setting things up and selling tickets and all that stuff. And two weeks before I was due to arrive, he called me and he said, Hey bro, uh, we, 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 the whales are here, but, uh, <laughs> we don't have any tourists. Yeah. Um, it's, it's probably looking like we're not going to be able to open. And he said, you're welcome to come. We would love to have you, but I'm just not sure I'm going to have anything for you to do. And then four days before I arrived in Iceland, he called me again and he said, I've got an idea. I'm not sure you're interested, but let me tell you, he said, one of my fishermen from Poland is unable to get in the country. And would you be willing to work on one of my, my fishing boat? I'm going to captain it. And we're going to do, go out for lump, for a lump fishing season, which is so I stupidly said yes, because what else does a retired police officer do but go and do, you know, fishing on the icy North Atlantic? Is this, deadliest, that. is this deadliest catch? There he so was. It, it, was, it, was, it was the most dangerous and sustained hard work I have ever done in my life. And I've done some really tough work in my life. Um, Brett, when you see this statistic... When you see statistics of dangerous jobs, obviously, it is one of them. obviously police were, were the most, they die. I mean, the highest rate of death, like obviously police is there, but number one is always fishermen. So you double down on the danger is what happened. Yeah. So my husband reminds me of that. My husband says, you know, you know, babe, you retired from law enforcement. And the whole idea was, you know, to give up this life of danger and the adrenaline rush. And, what the fuck did you just do? <laughs> um, at what point did you go, I made a mistake. This, this sucks. I, I honestly didn't have that moment. Um, there were times that uh, in the moment I was wondering if I could get through it um, between the nausea and the equilibrium being thrown off oh. and the bone chilling cold and, and the water and the fish guts and all of that. Um, but but it was exhilarating. I love pushing myself. I love challenging things like that. I've never been an extreme sports guy, um, but I can see where that draw is for some people. Uh, how cold was it? How cold was it? 
<laughs> I mean, I mean. Well, let's let's put it this way: um, the ocean never froze, um, but um, there were definitely large chunks of ice floating in the ocean. Uh, there were times when we were out there that it was well below zero, with rain, sleet, snow, um, and waves that, as the water came over us, because we were working on the deck of the boat, still getting the fish out of the nets, um, that the water would freeze on my face and in my beard. And if you got water down in below your, your watertight pants and, and jacket that you were wearing, um, only because of your body heat, it wouldn't freeze. Um, one of the first things they told me as an orientation was, if you go overboard, kick off your boots and start kicking and waving your arms as hard as possible, we've got about 10 to 15 minutes to get you out. Otherwise, take care. Otherwise, uh you kick the boots off because we'll need them for somebody else. So we'll come back yeah, that's them. exactly what it was. No, they actually, oh the, the science there is you don't want your boots to fill up with water and drag you down. Right, no, I got, uh, yeah. that just sounds like it sucks. And not in a good <laughs> way. So did yeah. they have a sauna on there, like on Deadliest Catch? Did they have like a little? No, no sauna. The, the boat I was on was uh, more like the size of the SS Minnow. Uh, not really uh, one of those larger trollers. Uh, and so, no, no, but I, I definitely... Iceland, of course, is uh, heated geothermally, and so when you're on on shore, all of that is available. We had yeah. one in the house and a hot tub nearby, and oh, so it's gorgeous. Wow. It's it's amazing. Brutal. Well, last week I saw that you were back. I think you posted on Facebook, um, like on the plane, I believe, and I wrote something back like, um, "The world." I'm glad you're back. The world has fallen apart since you've been gone. <laughs> um, you come back, um, and I believe it was. Were you back when um, we had the, the riots started happening, or were, were you back before or during that? So I, I arrived back in the United States um, just last Friday, um, and I returned to Washington, D.C. on sat late Saturday night. So uh, the murder of George Floyd had happened while I was still in Iceland. Um, a lot of the violent protests uh, or I shouldn't say those are even protests. A lot of the violence that occurred um, occurred while I was still over in Iceland. Um, and so I was watching it from across the ocean in, in great pain and, and sadness. Now, and I, you don't mind if we talk about this, do you? Uh, I'm, I'm happy to talk about it generally. I will tell you that one of the, the promises I made to, to MPD is, I'm not going to discuss anything that involves MPD issues or things no, like that, yeah. but I'm happy to discuss kind of the larger issues. Okay, good, good. Because I, w I wouldn't want to put you in a position like that because um, you've been a friend and an advocate to um, our people and um, not only that, but Washington, D.C. So I know you're a good person um, and I would never want to put you in, a, in an uncomfortable position and I would edit it out. Um, but uh, let's talk about... Um, the heartbreak that I know you had to feel for somebody who loves the city and has given their life, given many years, I should put it words that way, of your life to the city and seeing uh, the chaos that happened um, before the president went with the Bible to the church. Um, I'm sure that was horrific to watch. Yeah. Um, you know, especially for someone like me, and, and I'm not alone. Uh, there are many openly LGBTQ plus members of law enforcement, the military, and other public servants out there who I'm sure feel very similarly. 
and their spouses and loved ones for that matter. Um, but straddling between those worlds during this moment in our history is really painful because um, I want to advocate and support and to be there for everyone. Um, and unfortunately, there are, there are forces, um, there are people who um, are parts of those worlds in law enforcement and also in my community who are on such extremes in, the, in such extremes that I don't want to be associated with those messages, that those messages are to me hurtful and painful and not helpful. And so I'm trying very much to kind of continue what I did the last 20 years of my career, which is be a liaison, yeah. be a bridge between those worlds. Um, and, and I think I can be most effective doing that while avoiding, for me, it's important to avoid the politics. Um, I, I don't want to get into a discussion about that. That is not something that I am personally going to involve myself in. That's a personal decision. And uh, I'll, you know, vote the way I, I feel my conscience feels yeah. best, but more relevant. And for me, I can be most effective serving as a bridge of someone who knows a lot about the worlds in which that are colliding right now and help bring them together. Well, I think you have to start with the basics, which is um, law enforcement, police officers have a tremendous amount of power. And, and in my opinion, probably one of the most powerful uh, and authority laden positions in our society. You can't think of too many other professions that have the authority and the ability to take another person's life without asking for permission and without getting approval first. Um, that's a tremendous, tremendous authority and responsibility as a police officer. And so it starts with acknowledging the power and responsibility that is vested in our law enforcement. And when you then pivot and you admit, we have a huge problem with bias and racism in our society in our states, in our counties, in our cities, and in our police departments. And it is not shameful to admit that. In fact, it is important that we admit that, that implicit bias and explicit bias exists, and that we need to strive to eliminate that at every, every opportunity that we can do that. Uh, how do you think that starts? Well, sadly, it started many times in our nation's history. And we're looking at another moment in time when we have an opportunity to do more than just talk about it, to actually take action. Um, I have started to say over and over again that my biggest disappointment is that right now, Martin Luther King, Robert F. Kennedy, Mahatma Gandhi, Mother Teresa, they're all dead. Um, I don't see any leaders like that right now who are willing to place their lives in jeopardy, who are willing to place their personal wealth and their reputations in harm's way to literally stand in between the police and those who seek to harm the police through very principled and, and, and necessary ideas and, and, and desires, 
and to say, no, 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 hold on. I'm in charge. Talk to me. Let me tell you what I plan to do. And here's what I want to do together. I've not seen that kind of leadership, Jimmy. I've not seen that kind of sacrifice. Um, and when it comes to community members having to do it, unfortunately, they're powerless. They can only scream, yell, and destroy things at some point. Martin Luther King said, a riot is the language of the unheard. And I think until we understand how true that is, that, that people, not all of them, there are people who are anarchists and just want to destroy things, and those, those people have no principle in this, but many of the people who have committed violent acts are doing so, so out of helplessness, out of sheer, just where, where else do I turn? I've marched, I've petitioned, I've knelt, I've voted, I've cried, I've done all of those things. What the hell else am I to do? And when, when you place any individual, much less a, a race of individuals who have been oppressed and, 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 and just maligned over so many centuries, I don't think we should be surprised that we're going to see violence. And we can't then turn around and use violence to combat it because that's simply not the answer. One of the most beautiful moments of this was in, I believe, Louisville, Kentucky, when the officer got separated from his, his um, team. And I thought, when I re originally uh, read the story, that they were a group of guys who knew each other, who blocked off, um, uh, separated him from the rest of the folks who wanted to hurt him. But they were, and I'm, did you see that these men did not know each other? They just locked arms to guard this guy. I'm, I'm trying to find the quote that I posted, Jimmy. And okay, so, so keep, keep yes. sharing that and, thought because I, I, I was very moved by that story and particularly a, a, a quote that came from that story. So, so I found it. I, I posted something about this and I posted one of the articles I found. And there's, there's a, a current kind of meme going around or, or a slogan going around from members of law enforcement that says, no one hates a bad cop more than a good cop. And what I said in my post was that that is true, but we need to go beyond feeling that way. We need to actually take action when we come across bad cops, when cops are engaging in misconduct or criminal activity. And one of the gentlemen who protected that officer in Louisville, the last name of De La Cruz, was quoted in the article as saying, in the end, that's all we're asking for. What we need is for those great cops to hold their brothers and sisters accountable at all times. And I thought, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about those of us who are on the right side of history, who are on the right side of justice, not just saying we deplore this behavior, not just posting on Facebook or speaking out at meetings, but we need to take action. We need to take substantive action to do more than pay lip service to our support. Jimmy, know that I'm not alone. Uh, there are over 800,000 police officers in the United States, and so many of them, first of all, are members of our community and have cried like I've cried, um, particularly over the last couple of weeks, and are realizing more and more that, that we need to look at ourselves and can I stand next to my fellow brothers and sisters in uniform and wearing a badge, knowing that out of the hundred that may be on that line, 
even one or two have horrible thoughts or are willing to do horrible things? Am I willing to continue to do that? And, and there are a lot of police officers right now looking at themselves very critically and trying to decide whether they are part of actually taking action to bring peace and equality to everyone. And quite honestly, looking the opposite direction and saying, how can, how can we let community members know that they have an ally, that they have someone they can depend upon? Um, because there are many, many people right now throughout our world, but particularly in the United States, who simply don't feel that way, who fear us simply because of what we wear and what we represent. When you saw a lot of the videos that we've seen over the last couple of weeks, were you shocked that that many would come out in such a short amount of time? No. No, I'm not. I think uh, particularly at this moment in our history with COVID, the economy, the political tensions, and then this spark that has reignited, not ignited, but reignited issues of inequality and racial inequality in particular, I'm not surprised at all. Um, and my only hope is that it doesn't stop here, that we just don't go on to another news cycle and then wait for the next tragic and horrific event to occur and then do this all over again. We need to do something. We need to take action. Not, not a knee-jerk reaction, not something just, again, for lip service or to make people feel good, but effective, potentially life-saving changes that not only work towards peace and equality, but for all. Because we, we can't forget that there could be domino effects to decisions that we make. And again, I've said I, I want to stay out of politics, Understood. so I'm not going to discuss specifics, but we need to be very careful about what we decide to do in reaction, justifiably so, because many of the, these reactions are, are, are wholly justified, in fact, overwhelmingly justified. But to listen to experts, to listen to community members, and to listen to the members of law enforcement who are your allies, and understand that some of the decisions that you may be making could actually be more harmful in the long run than helpful in our, our march to peace and equality for everyone. If you were giving advice to a, a young officer joining the force, what advice would you give them? Uh, the first is be yourself and be a good cop, a cop who works towards peace and equality, a cop who listens and then acts. A cop who is dedicated to giving their life in service of others. And if you can't do that, this is probably not the job for you. Thank you so much. That's Brett Parsons, who has done so much for our community. We can't thank him enough. Thank you so much for listening to Out With Jimmy. If you go to Apple Podcasts, a nice review, some stars, as many as you can, would be very, very helpful. Thank you to Julia Ziegler from WTOP for allowing us to uh, host uh, Out With Jimmy here with them. Thank you very much. And thank you. And remember, you'll never know when the last time you'll be able to tell someone you love them. So go ahead and do it.